Father, I ask that as we open up your word, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that you would speak and that you would make us attentive to your voice. And I ask, oh God, that your voice would be louder and clearer than all of the other voices in our lives. God, we need your steady, your strong and your life-giving address spoken over our lives. So come Holy Spirit and make your word live among us, change us, awaken us, renew us, assure us, oh God, that we belong to you. We need your word over us tonight. So come Holy Spirit. And we ask this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. So tonight we're gonna be looking at a passage that addresses the topic of identity. And so I wanted to begin tonight by asking you this question. Have you ever had an experience or maybe a season that you went through in life that provoked, that maybe put you in an identity crisis? You know, maybe for you, it was you had your first kid and you left the workforce and you no longer know who you were anymore that you're not working. Or maybe you graduated college and uh, you had a degree in sociology or philosophy, but the only job you could get was at Starbucks, you know, or, or, or maybe you had a relationship that just fell apart and your whole world, your whole life, your identity was wrapped up in this other person and you don't even know who you are anymore. But I wonder if you ever experienced something of an identity crisis in your own life. You know, when I was 24 years old, my father-in-law sponsored me to go through this very elite, uh, prestigious uh, self-development program called the Master's Program. And those who were in this program were all CEOs and they were megachurch pastors, senators, uh, people who owned Learjets and uh, lots of money represented in this group. And my father-in-law invited me to participate and he sponsored me to go through this. Now, I was by far the poorest. I was far and away the least significant of everyone in that group. And every time I went to these group meetings, they were quarterly over the course of three years, I felt incredibly insecure secure about myself. You see, at that point in my life, I was working full-time as a telesales agent with AT&T Wireless. That means I was selling phones over the phone. And so I would dread going to these meetings and sitting down because I knew the conversation that would happen every time around these tables. I would sit down and somebody would say, so what's your name? I'd say, Josh. And the next question, what do you do? And so I'd answer vaguely, I work with AT&T. And then they would say, oh, that's great. What do you do with AT&T? And I say, I work again vaguely in sales. And then they said, in what kind of sales? And then I would say, telesales. And it would just go silent. And I could tell what they were thinking. They were thinking, why are you here? And who are you? And I felt incredibly insecure and I had this own identity crisis. You know, our identity is our sense of self and it's our sense of worth. And so if you have a strong and a secure identity, then you have a secure self-understanding. You know who you are and, and you have a strong self-worth. You have a strong sense that, that you matter, that you belong, that you have worth, that, uh, that, that your contributions are meaningful. But oftentimes in our lives, don't we experience those times where we find our own sense, our, our own sense of worth and meaning and value threatened? You know, I was reading a book uh, recently 
that highlighted just how challenging this issue of kind of creating, kind of finding our own identity and ourself is in the culture we inhabit right now. And the book was entitled The Self Beyond the Postmodern Crisis. And in this book, uh, the authors argue that in previous generations and throughout, you know, really human history and, and, and in many parts of the world still today, people gain their sense of identity from the surrounding culture, from their tradition, from their family, from their religion. And it's their, it's their tradition, it's their family that tells them who they are and what role they should play in society. And what these authors point out is that in modern 21st century America, we have deconstructed that whole thing. And instead of looking to our community or our family name and lineage and what our parents did and who our family was and what religious tradition we're a part, instead of looking to all of that to tell us who we are, instead we have thrown all of that off and we've sought to find our own identity from within through self-discovery and through self-expression. And, you know, just think how, how this, this, this reality of how we find our identity is played out in, in all of the, the stories that we love most, you know. Uh, just, just think about, uh, it, it, this is pretty much the plot line in almost every great Disney movie. You know, and so for example, think about Moana. You know, there's a queen and she is given a tradition and she is given a role she is supposed to play on the island. But that, that role and that tradition is oppressive and it's restrictive for who Moana really is. And so she goes on this, this journey of self-discovery and that's the, the, whole, the whole story and you hear it expressed in the lyrics of her song. Uh, she says, I know everybody on this island seems so happy on this island. Everything is by design. And I know everybody on this island, come on, has a role on this island. So maybe I can roll with mine. I better not sing. I can lead with pride. I can make us strong. I can be satisfied if I play along. But the voice inside sings a different song. And that's kind of the narrative in American culture. The voice inside sings a different song than the roles that are so oppressive and restrictive from the family and the home and the community. And uh, it's there, of course, in Frozen as well. You know, again, you have, you have Elsa, right? Who's the, the winter queen. And she's held back, you know, because she can't be her true self. And finally, in the moment where she breaks free and becomes her true self, remember that, that moment in the song? The wind is howling like this swirling storm inside. Couldn't keep it in. <laughs> Heaven knows I've tried. Don't let them in, don't let them see. Be the good girl you're always have to be, right? The, 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 the girl you have to be, the one that, that, that was laid on you by your society, by, by your parents. But then she says, conceal, don't feel, don't let them know. And then she goes on and she says, it's funny how some distance makes everything seem small. And the fears that once controlled me, oh gosh, I just, why can't I sing? I wish I could sing. But uh, she says, and the fears that once controlled me can't get to me at all. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. And I love this next line because you can just see these little four and five-year-olds singing this and it terrifies the parents. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I am free, <laughs> you know? Let it go, let it go. And what is that? 
It's, again, it's throwing off kind of like these, these preordained structures and roles and, that are oppressive and restrictive. And, and you've got to engage in self-discovery and self-expression. And this is the narrative in our culture. And this is what the authors of this book are pointing out. They're saying, look, you know, uh, we used to have these set roles and now we cast it off. But now what, what's left and the reason why the self is in such crisis you know, they, they say that the point of the book is to explore the dilemma of the self in modern culture. And here's the dilemma, is that if the culture and the society and your family and your religion and your tradition have not told you what to do, then who is left to determine who yourself is? And in our culture, that job is left to the self. And so they say, how does the self do that? Well, in some cases, the self does it through ongoing consumptive activities. We go out and we purchase products that we feel like suit our unique tastes and style, and then we display those products to other people so that they will know who we truly are. And so in one level, we could do it through consumptive activities. Sometimes it's through unique sexual expression or gender identity in our culture. Uh, sometimes it, it is, it's through our success and through our failures that we try to present who we are and this is who I really am. And, and they say that the, the problem is, and the reason why this creates so much issues in our culture and why it's leading to so much anxiety and depression and insecurity among so many of us, is because the self is an instable and insecure place to build your identity. Because your self is changing. And they say, look, the real problem is, is that most selves need something outside of the self to affirm us and to speak over us and to tell us who we are. And what I want you to see in Colossians is that in Jesus Christ, what we discover is a new identity. In Jesus, we meet a God who speaks over us, who tells us who we are, who gives us a sense of self and worth and understanding of who we really are. And that's what Paul is arguing to us in the section we're looking at today. And so I just wanna draw your attention quickly to it. I wanna draw to your attention uh, three features of the text that help us kind of get at what Paul tells us about who we are and where we can find true worth and dignity. Number one, he, he, he warns us. A second, he reminds us. And then thirdly, he assures us. Notice first, he warns us. And listen to what it says in Colossians 2, verse eight. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive. Here he is warning us. He says, beware. He says, be on the lookout. Be on the lookout. Beware of what? Well, he says of philosophy and empty deceit. Now, don't misunderstand what he's saying in our text. He is not warning us against philosophy or against academic learning or against uh, being an intellectual. You know, within Christianity, within the Christian tradition, there has always been a rich heritage of rich, profound thinking and philosophical and theological and intellectual reflection. And so he, he's not warning us against philosophy in general. Instead, he's warning us against a particular kind of philosophy. And it's a philosophy that he says is vacuous and deceptive. In other words, what he's talking about here is an ideology 
that we buy into that deceives us, it co-ops us. And he says, it actually captures us. It can actually draw us away. And he says, this is the kind of philosophy that is vacuous, that's grounded in human tradition. And according to the elemental spirits of the world, according to the gods of this age, and it's not according to Christ. And what he's really warning us here, as you look at it in its broader context, is he's warning the church here in Colossae and the church here in Sierra Madre. He's warning us against ideologies, philosophies about the self and where you find your identity. And we're gonna see this in a couple minutes when we move to the second point. But what Paul is really worried for is that this church is gonna reach out to other things than Christ to build their worth and their sense of self and their identity on. And that was a danger back in the first century. And it's a danger for us today. And you know, you know whether or not you are trying to build your identity and worth on the wrong things. When the very thing that you're cherishing and holding onto when you actually lose it and you feel like you've lost your sense of self and you've fallen apart. And the reason you feel that way, the reason why I can feel that way sometimes is because we've built our identity on something other than Jesus and the gospel and God's verdict over our lives. And so he's warning us here. He's saying, look, see to it, be careful. There are voices all around us in our culture telling us that where you find your true worth and your identity is in your success. It's by being beautiful. It's by being successful. It's by driving the right car and having the right house and having the right accolades and going to the right university. And, and they said, that's where you find your true self. And Paul says, it is a vacuous lie that is nowhere near sufficient to build a solid, secure identity on. And, 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 Whatever desires you have inside, whatever sense of self you have inside is not sufficient to build your identity on. And, and you know, um, uh, what other people say about you and your consumptive habits and purchases, those things are not worthy of building your identity on. Th those things can be shaken and they can fall apart and then you can feel like you've lost yourself. And so Paul is warning us, he is saying, look, be on guard against building your identity, finding yourself in something other than God. But he not only warns us, notice he moves on and he reminds us after warning us against building our identity on those vacuous philosophies and being co-opted by them and held captive by them and feeling terrible about ourselves because we're not measuring up to the standards that the world has set around us for where we should find our identity, he reminds us of where our true identity lies. Notice what it says in verse 11. He puts it in kind of a strange way. It's very unusual. Look what he says in verse 11. He says, in him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of Christ by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. Now here, Paul throws this term circumcision in three times in one verse and he acts as if it helps bring understanding for us and there's nothing awkward about it. And so why is, he, why is he using this term? Well, listen, in the ancient world, 
Ritual practice and symbol carried great weight with them. And for the ancient Jews, they had a, a, a collage of symbols and practices that told them who they were. It was the things that their tradition gave them that gave them their true identity. And chief among those symbols and practices was circumcision. And so Paul mentions that here. And then a little bit later, he talks about Sabbath observance and their special holiday practices. And then he talks about kosher foods. And, and each one of these were basically identity markers for the children of Israel. They were the, the mark, they were the badges that showed them who they were and who they were not. If they were circumcised, if they uh, practiced Sabbath, if they observed the holidays, if they ate kosher, it showed that they were distinct, that they were unique, that they were the special people of God. Now, those badges of identity was meant to keep them by God for a season ultimately until God's purposes would come to their fulfillment in Jesus Christ, at which case those previous symbols would all fall away and a new identity marker we would, we would find and that would be in and through our faith in Jesus and all that he's done. But here Paul is warning the church in, in his town. He's saying, look, he said, some, of, some people are coming in and they're pressuring you. And you're given the impression that you are not special enough. You are not a true part of God's family. You don't matter. You don't have worth and dignity unless you add to your life a certain set of rituals and practices that, of course, in their world was incredibly meaningful. And so Paul is reminding them, look, you don't need those things because, he says, you've already been circumcised in Jesus, and what he means by that is you have already been designated and set apart as God's special people, not by your works, not by your rituals, not by your practices, but instead by your faith in Jesus and all that God has done through Jesus. And he says that this new relationship with Jesus that you have and this new identity that you have in Jesus. It's, it's like, you know, Abraham was given circumcision in the Old Testament uh, to give to all of his descendants so that they might be marked off as God's people. And here he says, what God has given you is faith in Jesus. And this marks you off. It is what gives you your significance and worth. It is not what you have done, but is what God has done on your behalf in and through Jesus. And then he, he points to the ritual that the early church practiced in order to symbolically say, look, we are a part of God's new family. And that was the right, it was the practice of baptism. And what happens in baptism? Again, here's another kind of odd ritual. Jesus gave two kind of more ritualistic practices for the church to do again and again throughout the generations. And every church throughout church history has engaged in these two practices. One was the Lord's Supper and the other was baptism. And baptism was the practice whereby people would, would symbolically and publicly say that they are entering into this new family. And so when you're plunged down in the waters of baptism, uh, what we do at this church is we, we take somebody and we plunge them down. If they've been a real sinner, we hold them down for a real long time. Just kidding, we've all been real sinners. And then we bring them up. 
And what that strange ritual represents is our union with the death and with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just as Christ died to sin, so too when we have faith in Jesus, we say goodbye to our old life of sin and self. We say goodbye to those old ways whereby we tried to find ourself and our identity. We say, look, that's not where I find my identity anymore. That goes down in the grave and we get raised up with Christ. We, we, we come out of the waters of baptism and it symbolically says, look, when you become a follower of Jesus, everything becomes new. You have a new family. You have a new start. All of your sins, all of your wrongdoings have been washed away in the waters of baptism. You are new through Jesus Christ. And you have a new identity. No longer are you defined by your failures or by your successes or by your past or your dysfunctional family or the worst and stupidest thing you've ever done. You have been defined now by God's love over your life in Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, look, you have a new identity in Jesus. So he says, don't be deluded by the people that say, look, you need a particular job or you need a particular education, or you need to have a particular body, or you need to look a certain way, or, or you need to express yourself in a certain way, or you need to buy certain products and display those products. Paul says, all of that, no, that's, that's vacuous and that's empty. You are defined by God's love that has been spoken over your life in Jesus Christ. You have a new identity. You belong to God. You're a part of his family. And so after, after, he, 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 after he warns them and then he reminds them, finally, I want you to see that he assures them and us. Look what he says in verse nine. This verse is remarkable. He says, for in him, speaking of Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And you have been filled up in him who is the head of all rule and authority. He says that in the crucified and risen one, God himself was there dwelling. Jesus is fully God and fully man. The work on the cross was not the work simply of a man. It was the work of God in the man, Jesus Christ. The fullness of deity dwells in Jesus. And he says, and you have been united together with Jesus and you have been filled up in Jesus. And he says, because you have this new identity, he says, you are complete. You are sufficient. You are full because of what God has done on your behalf and for your sakes. You know, um, the most common way in which a Christian is described in the New Testament, you know, the, the, the most frequent phrase that's used to apply to your life if you are a follower of Jesus, it is the phrase, in Christ, and he uses it again and again in our text. He says, our identity is an identity that is grounded in Christ. I remember years ago when I was in high school, I heard a pastor say, and it's stuck with me ever since. Uh, he used this illustration. It, it, I, I don't know if it was a good illustration or not, but it stuck with me. So I'm gonna share it with you guys. But he said, uh, just imagine, or I'll put it in, I, I won't use his, I'll, I'll put it in my, just imagine, um, so Alicia, my wife, doesn't love overly spicy food. And so in New Mexico, they have these green chilies. And I like hot green chilies. I like to have a burger with a green chili on it. I like to have pizza, pepperoni pizza, put some green chili on it. A breakfast burrito, put some hot green chili on it. 
Can I get a witness out there? Come on. Yes. Yes, New Mexicans, come on. But you know, Alicia doesn't love, uh, she, she will not embrace and take in hot New Mexican chili. But if I take in the hot New Mexican chili and I walk over to Alicia, she will embrace me. And do you know in embracing me, she's also embracing the hot green chili that I just ate that has now become one with me. And this is a parable. <laughs> Listen, this is the remarkable thing about Christianity. Through faith and by God's grace over our lives and through the extravagant, infinite ocean of God's eternal love, God has united us together with himself in Jesus Christ. God has so united us with Jesus that we're called in Christ. That is, if you think about the father reaching out to embrace the son, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And all of those who are in the son, Jesus Christ, receive that verdict of approval and love. God, his verdict over you is yes. And it is love and it is grace. You belong to God. You have been united with the triune love that called all the universe into being out of love. And this is the stable, the sure identity that you can build your life on. And you know, of course, there's nothing wrong with going out and buying some products. This is what we do. We're Americans, right? Amazon, come on. And, uh, and of course, there's nothing wrong with having a good career and getting a good education and, and, and being successful. But, you know, when those things that are good become ultimate things and they become what you build your worth and your identity on, they will destroy you because you will never be successful enough. You will never be a good enough parent. You will never be a good enough student. Some of you, you never felt like you were a good enough son or daughter and you've got daddy wounds that go down deep. And, and, and all of us have got issues, you know, because we haven't been enough. But what, what the assurance that we're given here is, is that God looks over you and us and he says, you are filled, you are sufficient, you are enough in Christ. And when that penny drops in your life, you can engage in the work that God has given you to do, the work of parenting, the work of school, uh, the, the work of choosing a vocation, the, the work, that's my timer, by the way. That means the sermon's supposed to end, no, no. <laughs> but I'll say this. Look, when your identity is grounded and rooted in God's love that he speaks over your life, because ultimately, isn't that what we're all longing for? I mean, isn't that oftentimes when, when we're successful, what do we want? We want people to render a verdict over our lives and say, you're worthy. You know, and when we look nice and we've tried to, you know, fix our body and work out and, and we want people to look at us and speak a word over our life and say, you're impressive and you're worthy. And it's because deep down inside of us, we need a verdict spoken over our life. And that verdict is given to us in Jesus Christ. God has spoken as eternal his unbreakable, his infinite verdict of love and yes over your life. And so let's live out of that verdict. Amen. I'd like to invite our worship team up right now.
We're going to close this evening by singing together in a new song that says, love is a miracle. And it talks about that work of God in our lives where God breaks in and takes us from the darkness and brings us into the light, where God takes us out of the death of living in this old sense of, and he brings us into a new identity that is shaped by his own love. And so let's pray together and let's just ask that God would take this truth and push it deep into us and help us live out of it as his people. Lord God, we come to you now And God, I I recognize that so many of us carry around a deep sense of inadequacy. We feel like we are not worthy, like we're not enough. And I just pray, oh God, that you would break through all of the voices that play in our head that tell us we are not enough, that we are insufficient. And I pray, oh God, that you would let us know deep down inside that we are loved. And would you help us this week to live out of your love, to live out of that yes that you have spoken over our lives. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus, who is our great savior, who is love manifest among us through whom we have been redeemed and rescued. Amen.